Welcome to the Sports Performance Professional Podcast, where we bring you critical information on critical topics in the sports performance industry. If you would like to sign up for our email list, go to athleticholisticsystems.com, and that's holistic with an H, athleticholisticsystems.com. You click the tab in the right-hand corner, and you select Sports Performance Professional Podcast. You scroll all the way down to the bottom. You put in your first, last name, your email, and then you hit the send button, and you will get an email confirmation saying you have successfully signed up for our updates on the podcast. Today, we have a lot to go through, and I don't want to keep you waiting. And today's topic is, quote, is your sports nutritionist and strength coach really best friends? The fallacies of hypertrophy and gaining weight. I don't want to keep you waiting, so we're going to go ahead and get straight to it today. Uh-oh. Oh, here we go. So if you're looking visually, and if not, I'll try to make sure that I go over all the article titles if you want to go look them up, or you can look at the presentation visually. I will upload it to YouTube. Uh, just for those who don't know that I always upload the visual presentations to YouTube. But today I will be going into four articles, four research articles, and I will be going into a book published this year called Power, The Training of Champions by Antonio Squilante, if I'm saying that correct. And you spell his last name, S-Q-U-I-L-L-A-N-T-E, Antonio Squilante book entitled Power, The Training of Champions. And I'm focusing primarily on two chapters in that book that focused on talking about hypotrophy, muscle function, and gaining weight, and all the contexts and nuances that we need to know, not only as strength coaches, but also as sport nutritionists, and also as personal trainers, depending on the population base we're working with, whether that's youth at the grassroots level, high school, so we're talking about just adolescents, so teenagers, the college level, and the professional level. We all have to be on the same page and understand the information in unison so that we can give and create the best opportunities, not only in sport, but also off the field for the athletes. So let's continue to move forward and I'm going to go ahead and we're gonna get started with Scolante's analysis. Quote, the force a muscle can produce is proportional to its physiological cross-sectional area. And each individual cross bridge generates an average of 10 to the 23 times newtons of force per power stroke. The calcium-mediated coupling of actin and myosin that represents the core principles of the sliding filaments theory described by Huxley in 1952. So let that sink in. And that's very intuitive. The force a muscle can produce is proportional to its physiological cross-sectional area. Therefore, a muscle with a larger, larger 
physiological cross-sectional area due to greater concentration of contractile protein is undoubtedly, undoubtedly a stronger muscle. And I have this next line in all caps, bolded and underlined. For this very reason, myofibular hypertrophy is often referred to as functional hypertrophy because a change in muscle size is more likely to result in an increase in muscle function. That is, that is critical. And we have to just look at this in hindsight to the stronger, the bigger, stronger, faster paradigm, stairway era. And I'm not talking about, actually, actually, I, I, I'll, I'll take that back. The influence of bodybuilding, physique competitors, powerlifting, and Olympic weightlifting on sport performance and what we do in regards to sport performance and how we train in general. And you may say, you know, what, what are you talking about? Come on, like, come on, man, you know, you're tripping. And we have to consider and not lose sight that those are sports within themselves, which means that if we're following the law of specificity, and that's the only law we're following, then that would mean that, for instance, the general compound movement, squat, bench, and deadlift that are staples in all programs are general exercises for team sport athletes, for individual sport athletes, because they do not duplicate any of the joint actions or the neuromuscular pathways utilized, so the sequence of the joint actions, or move the joint through the same range of motion as demonstrated in the sports skill. Meaning that those three exercises would be specific to powerlifting because it's the sport-specific movement to Olympic weightlifting because it's duplicating some aspect of the sport-specific movement. And for bodybuilding, it's just a means to an end based on the gross volume load or the net load per day or over a microcycle, mesocycle, or macrocycle in determining long-term growth potential, muscle growth potential based on increasing overall net protein synthesis by the type of training, the intensity and the rep range and the rest periods as well. And then how much time and attention they're getting is generating that overall muscle response, that anabolic response you're looking for. But this is not the need of team sport athletes. So I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but we have to consider that. And the same thing if you're working with general population. The goal of working with general population, because they're also infatuated with, you know, big muscles, gaining weight, putting on mass, getting super strong. And you can have all those things and maintain the body weight and let the strength over time improve lean body mass, depending on what population of development the individual is. So how many years of experience do they have with lifting and have they already got rid of those newbie gains. After the newbie gains, you're not putting on weight that quickly. You're just not. If you exclusively want it to be lean body mass, a predominant amount of lean body mass and fat mass moving in the opposite direction. So a body is built with consistency. 
a body is built over time. You know, not this look like the Hulk in six days. Let's move forward. Quote, we're still on Squalante's book. In this respect, the hypertrophic response induced with training is critical to the development of stronger, more powerful muscles. If contextualized within a well-rounded, comprehensive strength training program, functional hypertrophy tends to result in a more moderate, often negligible increase in body weight, despite a more appreciable change in muscle strength and power. So, you, you know what I'm saying? You got, you have to let that sink in and resonate with you. Let me repeat that. If contextualized within a well-rounded, comprehensive strength training program, functional muscle function, functional hypertrophy tends to result in a more moderate, often negligible increase in body weight despite a more appreciable change in muscle strength and power. And remember, I'm going to bring this up. This is context dependent. Your early newbie gang lifters are going to have a tremendous, a much greater response hormonally and in body weight and body mass changes than your intermediate and your advanced lifter in the sense of the type of adaptations that are happening functionally, physiologically, structurally. So the very fact, whether you, like I said, it doesn't matter whether you're a personal trainer, they can still have lifted for a substantial amount of time. You're just not going to do it from the training in an expedited fashion. You're going to get those more so of the results you're looking for by focusing on the nutrition. That's where you get the biggest results with people, not in the training after a certain period of time in regards to newbie gains and shifting to an intermediate. They come much slower after that. So that's why the exercise has to be consistent. You, you know, you build strength with consistency. You build a great body with consistency. But if you're trying to get people to where they want to go quickly, then you have to be a little bit more invasive with the nutritional protocol, which means we're trying to improve that lean body mass to fat mass ratio and not trying to decrease body weight because body weight doesn't give the context of what you're losing. We're trying to shift the lean body mass in a more favorable relationship to fat mass. That's where you get your, your 30-day success stories from. Nutritional interventions, not going to be the training. Training, it just takes, again, it's, there's an incubation period. It's not going to do it that way. Nonetheless, let's keep this in consideration. So you're thinking long-term here with your training programs in regards to where you think the athlete is going to be in five years, in 10 years, as they continue to just go along their normal periodization of increasing strength as a means to increase power, as a means to increase speed, as a means to improve their overall technical execution within the sports skill they're doing on the field. You're always after improving technique, 
We want more strength to improve technique. We want more power to improve technique because improving technique means I can move through my movements quicker. Strength means I can move through my technique efficiently. I'm not compensating in any shape, form, or fashion. The end result, you, so you work backwards. The end result is improving technique. Is what I'm doing in my program going to improve technique? Is body weight increase going to improve their technique? Well, if it throws more load on the weight-bearing joints, so you have to ask yourself this question as well. Are you setting up the athlete for a predisposition for injury? Because you, know, you can't obviously just look at it through a prism. Okay, we're one increase body weight so we can increase, uh, increase on-field performance. But what's happening off the field? So just ask yourself, you know, if you if you had if you had an athlete and they come, let's say, with, with a certain body type and that body type will just say. Is equipped with a certain amount of bone mineral density specifically for their body types to, to support that weight, that load. And then they come with associated physiological predispositions. And if you told that athlete, all right, for the next month, I want you to wear a 20 pound backpack a 20 pound weight vest and depending on where they store store that 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 weight they may store it around the torso they may store it around the hips they may store it on the uh, the extremities it just depends but it doesn't matter let's just say you you threw a, a 20 pound weight vest and you only took the weight vest you didn't do it at practice you only did it off the field what would happen would that put more wear and tear on those joints and lead them. And again, you're not practicing with the 20 pound weight vest. You're just wearing it around. And Carmelo Bosco actually did a study like this, the hypergravity training. And you get improvements, but it's for a very short period of time, like two weeks. But you get, you know, crazy increases in vertical jump by just walking around with the heavy weight vest. Anyway, but what would happen? Would this lead the athlete to a greater predisposition for soft tissue injuries because you're putting more load on the joints without the necessary structure adaptations to support that extra weight, meaning you get the increases in bone mineral density, you get the increases in tensile strength or tensile integrity at the joints, the tendons, the ligaments, the connective tissue. And then you also develop the strength for the muscles to be able to support and withstand the forces that an additional 20 pounds will have when you're trying to go through movements fast so we always got to look at this in a tiered fashion and this is the same for your your general population while they're not obviously moving through and have to do power-based movements they still are going to be under that same constraint obviously hence why more weight a person a person who weighs is heavier is heavier than someone else are going to burn more calories at rest one, because muscles are just more metabolically active. And two, they're moving more load around, you know, over the same distance. So you're going to burn more calories. Now, let's continue. But it's just, these are just things. Oops, sorry. If you heard that, I made my, my computer slip. Anyway, but just keep that in mind. Didn't want to go off on a crazy off script topic, but it's sometimes it's just necessary to get you to think a little bit about what you're doing. And like I said, are you, if you're a strength coach or if you're a sport nutritionist, are you really, really best friends 
with your strength coach, with your sport nutritionist? Are you really best friend? Are you really aligned in your principles and your protocols? Or are you both chasing the wrong rabbit? No, I'm trying to be, I, I'm trying to be right. The reason this athlete was successful is because of me, my program. No, it's because of my nutritional protocol. You, you got to get away from that. Let's keep it moving. Quote, longitudinal studies on weightlifters, athletes who train year round to improve strength and power without losing sight of body mass and body weight as they are asked to compete in body weight categories have confirmed how heavy strength training per se has a moderate impact of muscle hyper or excuse me on muscle hypertrophy. So as indicated, longitudinal studies on weightlifters. So these are lifters who lift for strength and power. They train year round to improve strength and power, but they do not lose sight of body mass because they're in weight constrained or they're in a weight constrained sport because they have to be in body weight classes or category, excuse me. And so he's saying is that they're not training and losing sight of where their body weight is. So they're going to train in a very particular way with a very particular periodization plan to try to mitigate sarcoplasmic or what is called non-functional hypertrophy because they're trying to maximize strength to weight ratio, power to weight ratio. So they have to structure their periodized model as far as sets, reps, or the, the overall gross volume and then the net volume, which is the minimum threshold for adaptation. They're going to be very nuanced with what they're throwing at the athlete to not over exacerbate the anabolic response and put on more and more weight without the return in strength. So it's going to be much slower. So they get moderate increases in body weight, body mass over time. Because as we'll get forward, as he says here, Muscle hypotrophy is indeed to be considered as a byproduct. So if it's a byproduct, it's not being overemphasized. As you get stronger, you'll put on more muscle. So it's a much slower process to be considered as a byproduct of heavy strength training. And quote, I got this in bold. If you're looking visually, I have this in bold and I have this underlined. Any additional increase in muscle mass must be justified by an equal or greater increase in muscle function. I'm, I'm going to take a sip of water really quick, but let that sink in. Any additional increase in muscle mass must be justified by an equal or greater increase in muscle function. Bigger doesn't always mean better. We know this intuitively. If you're not going to get, if strength can't be built that fast, but weight can increase faster than strength can be gained, we have an issue. Unless the athlete 
is exceptionally strong for their body weight and adding on some glycogen, water, or even fat mass over a short period of time may help them increase their power because they can obviously move that extra load. But it still doesn't mean that it's not going to put additional wear and tear on their body. Muscles are adaptive, but is the connective, can the connective tissue sustain that? Can the bones sustain that? May or may not be. It really just depends on what those levels are. But let's move forward. Quote, and we're talking about the study that I'll bring up here. And I'm not going through the entire study. I just want to make one point in regards to this study um, that he's going to mention here. And then we'll get right back to the PowerPoint. Quote, in 1994, a group of youth weightlifters were tested before, during, and after two years of training. As their performance improved, so they increased their snatch, they increased their clean and jerk, their body weight barely changed. This is over a two-year period, and they were already elite weightlifters at the beginning of the study. So there's your context there. And the mean age uh, of the weightlifting group were was 17 years old. So obviously they had started lifting much earlier, but they were junior national or second place finishers internationally. And then, I mean, they, they were, it's, it's crazy. And they were also drug tested repeatedly to make sure that whatever increase in performance over those two years or in body weight wasn't attributed to or what they could find wasn't attributed to performance enhancement. But let me get back to the point. Their body weight barely changed with less than 1.5 kilogram of body mass gained over two years of training, which largely attributed to an increase in lean body mass. Plus or minus, you know, plus by about 2.8% increase in lean body mass over two years. The net increase in body weight after a period of intense training, therefore, is for the most part trivial. So that reiterates a point, which based on the context of the athlete, how long have they been training, that you're just not going to put on, you know, slabs of muscle. You will improve adaptations and functioning of the nervous system. but not physiologically in the short term, unless you're a beginner. We see that we are obviously this is intuitive as well. You know, you put, put a, a, a 14 year old on a weight program and they shoot up in weight, which could be more attributed to puberty or, or maybe not, but I, I'll probably say around that time, puberty is probably going to be your biggest uh, shift in weight mass and all these hormonal cascades that are going to influence physiology at that point in time. But that context is very important for determining what type of response is an athlete going to get or one of your clients are going to get from strength training alone without dietary intervention. 
I'm going to read that last line again. The net increase in body weight after a period of intense strength training is for the most part trivial due to it coming from myofibular hypertrophy. And it was, and, and the point being is it was exclusively a majority was lean body mass. They decreased their body fat percentage over those two years with the, with the minimal, and I mean minimal, like I said, 2.8% or the highest was 3.2 kilograms, you know, seven, eight pounds which I mean, that's tremendous over two years. I mean, your body's gonna look way different. You cut your body fat percentage, you drop that down or your body, your fat free mass, excuse me, your fat mass, you drop that down and then you increase your lean body mass by seven, eight pounds. Yeah, you, you'll look way different. Now let's look at the paper really quick. It's called Endocrine Responses to Overreaching Before and After One Year of Weightlifting. And let me pull up the paper really quick. So, all right, so I'm pulling this up. Okay, so here it is. So it's entitled Endocrine Responses to Overreaching Before and After One Year of Weightlifting. And the only thing I want to focus on from this paper is the graph that we just talked about, or that I just quoted from Squalante's book. So we have table one, which is subject characteristics and test session results over two years. And I actually really quick wanna read so that you know what population base we're talking about to provide that context. So nine male participants from two consecutive years of junior age group U.S. National Weightlifting Training Camp served as subjects for this investigation. So the mean age of the first year of the test they conducted of the participants was 17 years and six months. And their body weight was 63.9 kilograms on average. So they were under 18 years old. And the standard error there is 0.3 months. So it's not like, oh, you had some that were 21 and all the, I mean, most, they were under the age of 18. And their body weight was 69 or 63.9 kilograms on average. Each subject placed first or second both years in drug tested national competition according to his age group and weight class and was subsequently selected to participate in these training camps. All subjects had repeatedly tested negative for drug use. Prior to the study, each subject was informed of the experimental risk and signed an informed consent document with the approval of his or her uh, parents. But the last line is what was critical. I wanted to give you how old they were, what were their starting weights for the most part. Their elite status was the other aspect. So they placed first or second in both years in drug-tested national competition. And then also, the elite status of these individuals is indicated by their previous and subsequent athletic accomplishments. Five subjects were selected to the junior world team, four Pan American Games medalists, five senior U.S. national champions, and three Olympic team members. These were, these were elite. These were elite-level athletes. So we're not talking about beginners or even intermediates and we're not talking about general population 
So looking at table one, at year one, they were 17.6 on average years of age. Year two, of course, that's just one year increase. In height, they grew about an inch taller. So they went from 176.9, actually not even an inch, 167.9 centimeters to 168.1. So not, not an inch, we're talking about you know, 0 0.2, 0 0.3 centimeters. Body weight from year one to year two, an elite level experienced weightlifters who were 17, their body weight was 63.9 on average in year one. In year two, it was 65.7 kg. So we're talking about, you know, less than right at, right at two kilograms of body weight increase in two years. Their fat mass percent, the relative fat percent was five in year one. In year two, it was 4.7. So they decreased their overall relative fat percent over those two years with the increase with about, like I said, the two kilogram increase in body weight. Fat-free mass went from 60.7 in year one on average to 62.5 on average. So we get a decrease in relative fat percent and we get an increase of about two kilograms on average in fat-free mass. And the years of training was on average 3.6 years of training prior to this study. So they had been tra training for about three years, close, you know, three years and six months, close. And they had statistical significant improvements in their uh, snatch and clean performance as well. So those were the two only statistically significant um, categories as far as like the, the descriptive statistics between year one and year two. So they had non-significant changes or increases in fat-free mass, non-significant changes or decreases in relative fat mass. But we do know those numbers, the lean body mass went up and they went down, but they weren't significantly different uh, from the training program that they were on based on all the other nuances I said. But like I said, just let that sink in. Performance increases, negligible increase in lean body mass over two years, negligible decrease in fat mass over two years, but significantly improve their performance over those two years. So let's go back to the original PowerPoint. So let me put it back on the PowerPoint. Exit off this. All right. So now we're we're back we're back to the PowerPoint. So let's move forward with Squalante. Let me get a drink of water real quick. All right. Quote. On the other hand, non-functional hypertrophy or sarcoplasmic hypertrophy describes an increase in muscle cross-sectional area due to an increase in sarcoplasmic volume, the cytosol of a muscle fiber. The increase in muscle cross-sectional area reflects an increase in glycogen content, intracellular water content, capillaries, and mitochondrial mass. So you see this is much different. If I go back, let's talk about the key aspects 
of myofibular hypertrophy. Let's see, where is it at? We see in myofibular hypertrophy, we see a greater concentration of contractile proteins, stronger muscle. Now let's go back or let's go forward to the adaptations we're seeing in what's called non-functional hypertrophy or sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. We're seeing an increase in cross-sectional area due to glycogen, water, capillaries, and mitochondrial mass. We didn't see a greater concentration of contractile proteins as was, that was not named. So I have this bolded and underlined, if you're looking visually. There is very little change in the contractile properties of the muscular tissue with a much more appreciable change in body weight. Athletes might become heavier, but not necessarily stronger, a combination that can be extremely harmful to athletic performance. So I just, you know, I'm, I'm letting that sink in. Very little changes in contractile properties of the muscular tissue. Yet you have a much appreciable change in body weight. And of course, we're just not going to be talking about, you know, putting on fat mass. That's just nonsensical from a sports performance standpoint. We're talking exclusively the adaptation happening at the muscle. You're getting bigger, but you're not getting stronger. And even if you're stronger for your body weight and you add on weight, is that still adding more wear and tear on the joints and the supportive structure, your connective tissue, in order to withstand forces from that extra load, even though your muscles are strong enough to movement? Doesn't mean your joints are adapted to handling more torque from that extra weight. So we have to weigh, like I said, these trade-offs. There's no solutions. There's only trade-offs. If we go this route, what are we sacrificing? Well, if we go back to the other route, what are we sacrificing? And I want to recall that in that study with the weightlifters, we did not see what the nutritional intervention was as well, which may or may not, may or may not, which is definitely critical to why we saw those adaptations. Because obviously if they changed the nutrition to being a caloric surplus every month for two years, they would have been much bigger. Would, he, would, would we have seen the same relative increase in strength that's significant? Maybe not for the amount of increase in body weight. Would their performance have significantly improved if they jumped three weight classes in two years? Probably not. So they improved their lifts Perspective of staying in their weight category. So we're considering how harmful the pro a type of program you have your athletes on and this obsession with physique athletes, bodybuilding, being, you know, stronger than you need to be, and how this may be affecting the general population. Because you have to ask yourself as well. You know, how many people truly use strength training and exercising as a come up to just consume more calories than anybody they want to eat? 
You know, it's just the elephant in the room. It's just what it is. Okay, everybody, you know, we about to go get these squats in, about to get these deadlifts in. And then I'm hitting, I'm hitting the Chinese buffet line. Cause I worked out today. I'm, you know, I'm going to Smoothie King, you know, give me the king size smoothie with double banana, throw some honey in there and give me, you know, two, three scoops of protein. You know, I'm good. I'm good. It's justified. But obviously that's, that can be counterproductive because you're not always bulking. That, that, see, that's the critical aspect. Oh, well, I'm bulking. No, no, you're not. You're not. <laughs> what are you bulking for? It's not improving your performance. It's not going to improve your technique. It's not going to improve your resiliency to avoid injury because you can withstand the forces that you're putting on your body and your recovery. Then you're not always in bulking. It's not all bulking is not year round. You know, it's not bulking season year round. And I, I know I've said it, you know, like six times in a row, but I'm trying to hammer a point. It's you're not always bulking. So we just have, like I said, we just have to consider what those trade-offs are. And the nutritional intervention is going to be critical, sport nutritionists. The nutritional intervention is going to be critical to adding the constraint of improving sport performance. And then the strength coach, the program that you're putting them on that's going to elicit how much anabolic or net protein synthesis increase based on the overall gross volume, so the total sets, reps, volumes, and then how much training they're doing over the threshold of adaptation you're looking for is going to be very dependent or is going to be, yeah, the outcome is going to be very dependent on how much hypotrophy they're going to adapt or the how much the hypertrophic response the body is going to have to the training, basically, is what I'm saying. That's where the strength coach comes in. And the nutritionist comes in with trying to help mitigate that response as well by not giving, by giving the body the resources it needs to recover and adapt to the, the training, but also not overly stimulating anabolic pathways to increase what the strength coach may be doing in the sense of creating a tremendous hypertrophic response, sarcoplasmically speaking, if that makes sense. So they have to be very aligned because if the strength coach obviously is giving a tremendous amount of volume between 70 and 80% and a tremendous amount of time under tension, yet the sports nutritionist may not be giving a protocol to help complement that program, well, you have obviously a performance decrease. I'm not recovering. I'm super sore. I'm not getting the amount of amino acids or macronutrients and micronutrients that I need in order to recover from this type of training or vice versa. A very anabolic nutritional protocol, but a very neural-based adaptation program. Low volume, I wouldn't say low volume, probably low net volume and uh, probably not no low net volume, but basically the strength coach is going after more neuroadaptation yet the nutritional protocol 
is more supportive of glycolytic work. That's also going to be a problem because the athlete's going to be putting on weight that they're not putting on based on what they're taxing in the program. But let's continue to move forward. But you, you, you get the thought process that we're looking at here, all right? Has to support the training. Nutrition has to support the training. Training has to support what you're trying to do with the athlete long-term and the needs of the athlete. Quote, it is of paramount importance to understand how primary muscular hypertrophy, the word primary is used to indicate what appears to be a physiological response to heavy strength training, is a natural byproduct of training for strength and power as muscles initially adapt to the demand imposed by increasing size and density. And we'll talk about the next paper coming up just briefly. Hackenden, if I'm saying it right, 2003, has described in great detail the extent of both functional and structural adaptation following 21 weeks of strength training in a group of 16 subjects with a different degree of experience in resistance training. So let's run that back. He's saying is the word primary, so it is of paramount importance to understand how primary muscular hypertrophy used, so primary used to indicate what appears to be a physiological response to heavy strength training is a natural byproduct of training for strength and power. As muscles initially adapt to the demand imposed by increasing size and density, and, as, and what I'm trying to say is, is that that is dependent on the starting level of the athlete. Are you talking about a beginner? Are you talking about an intermediate? Are you talking about an advanced level athlete? Have they been lifting for zero to one years, you know, two to three years? or three years plus as you go up that ladder. And so Hackenden, Hackenden, if I'm saying it right again, detailed across a spectrum of experience in resistance training, so newbies, intermediates, advanced, based on how many years they've been lifting, the extent or the magnitude of functional and structural adaptation over 21 weeks of strength training and 16 subjects. So these are the results from the study and then I'll pull up and show you what the, what the uh, table looks like. Isometric strength increased by 4% and dynamic strength increased by roughly 7%. So their overall the peak isometric strength increased by 4% and their one rep maxes or dynamic strength increased by 7%. In most experienced subjects, yet no change in muscle mass and or body weight was reported. So they got stronger, but they did not change in muscle mass or body weight significantly. And these were your experienced subjects in the group, your experienced lifters in the group. Conversely, Muscle strength increased by nearly 20% in the less experienced subjects alongside a more tangible change in body weight with an increase in muscle mass of 5.6%. So you see the exact opposite effect that the younger training group or the less experienced subjects saw a significant increase in body weight in response to the same training program. Nevertheless, the ratio between strength and mass changed in a similar manner between groups 
indicating how primarily hypertrophy is subordinate to the development of muscle strength and any increase in muscle mass becomes redundant and or secondary as an athlete develops a more efficient neuromuscular system, which I think is a critical point. As the neuromuscular system becomes more efficient, weight tends to become negligible at the same pace that you're increasing strength. Hence, while much of the Eastern literature developed their protocols in order to mitigate weight gain over time because weight gain can kill progress can kill it because you don't you just don't want to risk putting on fat mass of course and then also as we'll go forward why sarcoplasmic hypertrophy can be bad from a biomechanical standpoint looking at pinnate angle and decreasing overall speed of joints based on how fast the muscles can contract. So this is nonetheless a very critical point. As I state again, the ratio between strength and mass changed in a similar manner. So they got relatively for their group, they got strong in relation to what their mass change was, which was great, greater for the younger group and basically non-existent for the expert group. But it still highlights that hypotrophy is secondary or an increase in my, uh, muscle mass is secondary to the development of a more efficient neuromuscular system. And we know this intuitively. Let's continue. On the same, talking about the same paper from Scolante. Quote, strength training alone has shown to have a strong effect of force production and rate of force development, two important neuromuscular components of power production. So force production and rate of force development, RFD. Muscular hypertrophy only marginally contributes to the net improvement in muscle function, and it appears to be more predominant as an early adaptive response to resistance training. Functional adaptation, i.e. improved motor unit recruitment and synchronization, intramuscular and intermuscular coordination results in a more appreciable change in the power to weight, weight ratio of an athlete, supporting better performance in sports that require a great deal of speed, power, and agility. So we see the positive benefits that we already intuitively know from strength training at the neuromuscular level. And muscular hypertrophy marginally contributing to the net improvement in muscle function. And is really an early adaptive response to resistance training, as we saw with the context of Hakkinen's 2003 study, that it's a early response to resistance training in new trainees, but over time, it's not accounting for the increase in performance, nor is it dependent on it, because most of the adaptations are happening neuromuscularly, which is what we're trying to target with our training long-term. And also shooting for that appreciable change, as he mentioned, in the power to weight ratio. And this is what you're looking for for your gen pop, your general population 
group. You're really looking to improve their strength to weight ratio, their power to weight ratio. So your closest means, depending on the context, let's say, of your gen pop, which will be how much body fat are they carrying, is going to determine, one, the nutritional interventions you're going to use, and secondly, what training do they need to maximize their return in health, but also to get the aesthetic look they're looking for. Do you need to improve their VO2 max first so you can improve their ability to be more metabolically uh, flexible, meaning they can oxidize fat in a healthy manner. So you're improving the functioning and the efficiency of their mitochondria. You're shifting them out of running on glucose 24-7 year-round. So now they can actually tap into elevated blood blood glucose, elevated blood fat levels and be able to oxidize that fat, depending on what body fat category they weigh in. This is this comes from Lyle McDonald. A lot of his books, I have all his books. And the physiology for burning fat is based on how much body fat you have, which means that you would need more aerobic training to improve fatty oxidation, improve the functioning of the mitochondria, and then potentially strength endurance work. Because again, if someone obviously has a high amount of body fat, they have a tremendous amount of load on their joints. So you're trying to, one, get rid of that, number one. That's their biggest injury risk, number one. Improve fat oxidation. Drop the body fat through that mechanism. Improve their overall conditioning, strength, endurance, low impact stuff. But that's the first thing you get down. It's nutritional intervention, and then you're trying to improve their conditioning. And as those markers, health markers, improve, then you start to incorporate and go down the next line. Okay, they jump to category two, which I think for men is between like 15 and 22%, something like that. We're now, okay, they're in a healthy range. They can switch between fat and sugar metabolism, depending on what energy source is available, and then depending on what type of training they are, and then you go from there. Okay, now strength training can have much more of an impact on improving lean body mass, because obviously the the lower your body fat percentage, if you do cut calories, the higher chances or probability you're going to cut muscle, uh, muscle tissue versus fat, because you just have less fat to lose. So anyway, I'm just saying is this is how you have to think about it within the context and nuances of the population you're working with. I don't care if it's athletes. I don't care if it's general population. But it gets back to the title. Is your sport nutritionist and your strength coach really best friends? Are they really on the same page? Are they really hanging out? Are they besties? If they're both on... This miscommunication trip, I'm catching you at the wrong time. Now, nah, Ralph, you know, your program's not aligned with my program. 
Maybe, you know, we got a, an ego thing or maybe we're reaffirming our own biases. You want to do my job. I'm trying to do your job when we're not. We're neither of us are trying to do each other's jobs. We just miscommunicating. But because we're miscommunicating, we're reaffirming our already our inherent biases about the other group. Thus, distance distancing us even further. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy, right? You would think everybody in the building is literally there for the athlete, but yet behind closed doors. You know, can't can't get along other than the, you know, the superficial, you know, OK, you know, we saying how we hang out, et cetera. But when it comes down to actually constructing a program, we're, we're off tip because we can't agree to disagree or we can't disagree to agree. Because it doesn't at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, you know, whether you think, you know, more information, than the other person or whether you have a certification in this or whether you're registered there. It, it really doesn't matter. What matters is outcome. You could you could be the smartest person, have all the credentials you have. And the outcomes may not be on point, may not be what the athlete needs. So we have to have, we just have to consider that. And let's look at this article really quick. And we're looking at this hormonal response. Oh, actually. So I wanted to show what the two articles were. So we have Hackenin, Hackenin 2003, which is entitled Neuromuscular Adaptations During Concurrent Strength and Endurance Training Versus Strength Training. And then Kramer, 1992, Acute Hormonal Responses in Elite Junior Weightlifters. So let's take a look at the neuromuscular adaptations. during concurrent strength and endurance training. So, so let's look at the neuromuscular adaptations. All right, so I'm pulling this up now on screen for those looking visually. Let's pop that up. All right, so I now have this on screen. And let's, we'll just actually go through, let me see. Let's see if I'll pull up a graph. Just bear with me, get into the graphs. All right, so here we go. So we see, if you're looking visually, and I just wanna put these graphs on here for you from the paper, that over 21 weeks in leg extension, so let me see here. Yeah, so we're just looking at the strength parameters for leg extension. They used EMG um, of the vastus lateralis. But we see with the, with the strength training group versus the strength endurance group, we see in the strength training group, there was an increase in leg extension strength over a 21-week period. So maximum, so max strength significantly greater and the strength training group, all right? And this is pretty intuitive, just based on the nature of the two type of training modalities, long-term speaking, if that's all you did exclusively. And then if we look at maximal rate of force development, 
of the leg extensor. So in just the leg extension, we see same thing, a significant difference between the two, which again is pretty intuitive, all right? And so I wanna read really quick. And we also see too that VO2 max obviously is gonna significantly increase in the strength endurance group. So like I said, this is what I'm, I was getting to with general population and depending on their body fat percentage, let's say if they're you know like above 22 to 30% for men and above 30% for women, then you're primarily gonna focus on improving their conditioning so you can improve their metabolic flexibility, um, et cetera. And then strength training can begin to be funneled in there after the load on the joints have been reduced greatly and then they are starting to, be able to utilize glucose uh, in a healthy, a healthy manner. So we're just going to read this point from this paper. The purpose of the study was to investigate effects of concurrent strength and endurance training versus strength training only over a training period of 21 weeks. The resistance training program addressed both maximal and explosive strength components, EMG, maximal isometric force, and one rep max strength, and rate of force development of the leg extensors. Muscle cross-sectional area, cross-sectional area of the quadriceps femoris throughout the lengths of the femur, muscle fiber proportion, and areas of type one, type two A, and type two B of the vastus lateralis and maximum oxygen uptake were evaluated. No changes occurred in strength during the one week control period, while after the 21 week training period, increases of 21%, which was significantly, which was statistically significant, and 22%, which was statistically significant, and of 22% and 21% took place in one rep max load and maximal isometric force in the strength training and strength endurance groups respectively. Increases of 26% and 29% occurred in the maximum IMG, IEMG of the vastus lateralis and, oh, excuse me, increase of 26% and 29% occurred in the maximum IEMG, so electromyography, uh, I believe that's how you say it, of the vastus lateralis and strength and strength endurance groups respectively. The cross-sectional area of the quadriceps femoris increased throughout the length of the quadriceps femoris. So they just took rate, they just took measurements along the thigh at different spots, both in the strength training group and the strength endurance group. The mean fiber areas of types 1, 2A, and 2B increased after training both in the strength and strength endurance uh, groups. Strength training showed an increase in rate of force development while no change occurred in strength endurance. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing that in the areas of what we talked about in regards to sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, we're seeing that they're pretty much mano y mano. They're about the same for whether you do exclusively strength training or strength endurance. You get similar increases in one rep max you get similar increases I already stated in maximal isometric force. You get similar increases in cross-sectional uh, area of the quadriceps, which is what they, they measured. Um, and you also get increases in type one, type two A and type two B after both training protocols. Now, huge difference is in the increase in explosive strength, so rate of force development. You didn't see a change in strength endurance, but you saw a change in the strength training group exclusively. So, that, so we, like I said, th that is really intuitive. 
uh, there. The average IEMG of the vastus lateralis uh, during the first 500 milliseconds of the rapid isometric action increased only in the strength training group. VO2 max increased by 18.5% in the strength endurance group. So we see that difference there. So you didn't see a tremendous amount of VO2 max increase or uh, aerobic conditioning in the strength training group, but you did in the strength endurance group. The present data do not support the concept of the universal nature of the interference effect in strength development and muscle hypotrophy when strength training is performed concurrently with endurance training. The training volume is diluted by a longer period of time with the low frequency of training. However, the present results suggest that even the low frequency concurrent strength and endurance training leads to interference and explosive strength development mediated in part by the limitations of rapid voluntary neural activation of trained muscles. So I don't want to go too in-depth here because we still have two papers to go and I only want you to introduce this. So if you want to go and read and look at the details, I'm just giving you what is relevant in respect to the topic of hypertrophy, functional hypertrophy and non-functional hypertrophy and whether or not you should be, or you have a justified reason for going after getting athletes big you know looking like hulk hogan all right so just keep that in mind so i'm just putting the whole paper on screen etc now let's go back to the powerpoint so i'm pulling it back up oh actually let's go back to the powerpoint and then i will show you and we'll pull up the second paper that I mentioned from Squalante, which is now acute hormonal responses in elite junior weightlifters. So let's pull up this paper and then we'll keep moving forward. All right. This is by Kramer and this is 1992, as I mentioned in the in the uh, PowerPoint. So not to go in depth, but to introduce it, you want to see it and go look at it in detail as I've already done. Let's go. To date, no published studies have demonstrated resistance exercise induced increases in serum testosterone in, in adolescent males. Furthermore, few data are available on the effects of training experience and lifting performance on acute hormonal responses to weightlifting in young males. We've already looked at a study that looked at this uh, longitudinally, and I looked at what the changes in body weight were, but now we're going to look at potentially uh, how is the hormonal cascade affected in elite, we're going to elite male weightlifters. And they were on average 17 years of age in the same study as well, plus or minus 1.4. Volunteer for the study, an acute weightlifting exercise protocol using moderate to high intensity loads and low volume characteristics of many weightlifting training sessions was examined. I mean, you're not going to get a tremendous hypertrophic response because look at the volume in, re in relation to the intensity of the loads versus a bodybuilder protocol being the complete opposite. You're going to sacrifice overall intensity for more volume and more density, training density. The exercise protocol 
was directed toward the training associated with the snatch lift weightlifting exercise. Blood samples were obtained from a superficial arm vein at 7 a.m. for baseline measures and again at pre-exercise five-minute pulse and 15-minute pulse time points for determination of serum testosterone, cortisol, growth hormone, plasma, beta, endorphin, and whole blood lactate. The exercise protocol elicited significant increases in each of the hormones in whole blood lactate compared to pre-exercise measures. While not being significantly older, subsequent analysis revealed that subjects with greater than two years of training experience exhibited significant exercise-induced increases in serum testosterone from pre-exercise to five minutes post-exercise, while those with less than or equal to two years of training show no significant serum testosterone differences. That's interesting. So we see context is everything. In this case, greater than two years of training experience, less than or equal to two years of training experience. And the magnitude of effect it has on influencing testosterone levels. None of the other hormones or whole blood lactate appear to be influenced by training experience. Exclusive from years of training, strength levels did not influence hormonal response patterns as lifters classified as strong show no differential responses from those classified as weak, as both groups demonstrated hormonal increases with acute exercise. These data suggest that training experience in elite adolescent weightlifters is most influential when examining the hypopituitary gonadal training adaptations. Sorry about that, I was clearing my throat. So I just wanted to put this out there and show how context is everything that determines physiological response to stimuli, whether it's what body fat category you fall in, determining what needs to be targeted in your exercise program, and also what the nutritional intervention needs to be. And secondly, how many years of training determining your response to a particular program and also to dietary or nutritional intervention. So we have two categories here or two contexts, the amount of fat mass you're carrying, the overall amount of lean body mass you have, and then how many years of training experience do you actually have? I mean, obviously, we'll put that within the nested within, you know, men and women. But this is things you have to think about. So are you really best friends, besties with your strength coach, sport nutritionists? With your sport nutritionists, strength coaches, we got to be on the same page. So I'm just clicking through 
the paper here so that it's recorded on screen when I upload it to YouTube and that you can see this if you want to look at the paper and read it yourself. Now let's move back to the PowerPoint. And I wanna mention really quick, if you want to sign up for our email list, go to athleticholisticsystems.com. And that's holistic with an H, athleticholisticsystems.com. And sign up for the email list under the tab called Sports Performance Professional Podcast. Now we can get back to the PowerPoint. And sorry for those who've been here the whole time. I got to do just a little bit of marketing, just a little bit, so that we keep the bills, we keep the lights on, keep the bills paid. So we're going back to Scolante's book, quoting. Quote, hypertrophy work becomes necessary only when the levels of strength required to complete, or excuse me, to compete in sport are above the physiological level of strength an athlete can generate at his or her physiological body weight. That's critical. So hypertrophy only becomes necessary when an athlete has reached that or their threshold or their maximum capacity for strength they can develop at their current body weight. So how many of your athletes have actually maximized their strength to weight ratio, meaning they've tapped all they can at that body weight? Not many, because most of us, we, when we get stronger, we tend to get bigger. We, you know, we improve our, we uh, increase our body weight. So the relative strength percent and power percent stays the same. Sometimes, in mo most cases, it goes down. Let me continue. Even then, the repeated effort method, so repeated effort meaning you're more so targeting, it's a strength endurance method, basically. High time under tension, short rest, high training density, high volume, low, lower, moderate overall intensity, you know, 70, 80%. And it can even be as low as 60 or 70% as well. It actually will have to be based on how much rest you cut. Even then, the repeated efforts method is not meant to be used alone. Its applications are very much complementary as the repeated effort method does build volume alongside the maximum efforts method. So maximum efforts method means you're training above 80%, basically, with heavy compound movements to create the optimal conditions for muscle to grow. So what he's saying is you need a combination of lifts above 80%, to hit that minimum adaptation threshold. And then you throw the sprinkles in to fill in the gaps with moderate to light loads. So moderate, 70, 80%, light, 60 to 70% to fill in those gaps to make the most optimal concoction of neural adaptation and volume to stimulate muscle growth. In the case, of an athlete who needs to improve body weight. So just keep that context. For an athlete who has gotten as strong as they can at their body weight and they need to increase their weight, this is what he's referring to 
you doing to get muscle growth, but also maximizing strength. Let me continue. Training for functional hypotrophy does increase the number of contractile elements within the sarcomere, primarily the number of filaments of actin and myosin, increasing strength as a consequence. Yet, for power to increase as well, the dynamic efforts method, so explosive strength training, explosive lifts, is an important, or you can call that velocity-based training or power training, is as important as the maximum efforts method strength training above 80% and converting structural adaptation, muscle hypertrophy into function or functional adaptation. So you build the strength and then you convert it. At the neuromuscular level, which is a growing debate, which it shouldn't be a debate. How much strength do you really need? Should you be overemphasizing maximum strength without a time component? Velocity-based training obviously is well-known. Power training in the 60s. Do you use Olympic lifts? So there's all these questions about, you know, what means and methods are most effective. or optimal, but that's not the topic of this discussion. So let's move forward. Quote, it is impossible to discriminate between two different, not necessarily mutually exclusive approaches to developing muscle hypertrophy and strength training for sport. One approach by far, the most predominant one among athletes is training for myofibular hypertrophy, which you've already stated before. And this was repeated because he states this in two separate chapters. So he's just reintroducing or re-going over that initial point. The goal is to increase the contractile component of the sarcomere in an attempt to increase muscle function. So muscle strength and power and not just size. Hypertrophy work is exclusively justifiable when athletes are in need to increase lean body mass in the attempt to express higher than the average levels of strength and power. So see the, the critical words he's using he said increase lean body mass he didn't say body weight he said lean body mass specifically targeting increasing muscle related factors in an attempt to express higher than the average levels of strength and power that most team sport athletes need for an athlete who need who excuse me for an athlete who only needs average levels of strength, for men, that's 1.8 to two times body weight in the barbell back squat, and 1.2 to 1.5 body weight uh, times body weight in the back squat for females, this approach is redundant and it can become counterproductive. As we said, chasing strength, even if you're not getting let's say bigger, can be counterproductive because it could, what, make you slower. Why? Because spending too much time developing strength, you lose time on the dynamic effort method. 
or velocity-based training, developing power. Because obviously increasing strength, let's say powerlifting, powerlifting is a sport. So obviously spending a lot of time building strength, you're going to have a trade-off of, you're just not going to necessarily be at peak capacity with that strength to produce optimal power for your sport. If that makes sense. So because it's a sport in itself, then it's a particular adaptation working at that type of load and at the velocity you're moving the load. And the longer you spend in that phase, the more time you're going to have to spend, obviously, in a power training phase in order to try to optimize what you developed in the previous stage. So that's why it's always a means to an end. And so the real question is, and he's just giving out parameters like, hey, most athletes, if they have a squat between 1.8 and 2 times body weight for men, you're good. Like you're, you're good on strength. Like you don't have to overemphasize strength, meaning, like, hey, we're going to do a substantially longer strength training block, max strength block, so that we get the rate on in turn. Like, no, you do your typical strength block. And then you're trying to maximize and tap into more power, more jumps, more speed training, more specialized exercises within that velocity as clo you know, closer to what you do with the, basically you're spending more time doing plyometrics, basically. When I mean ply plyometrics, they're not exclusively to jumps. You can do plyometrics for the torso. You can do plyometrics for the upper body, of course. You do plyometrics within the sports skill. You have the creativity and the implements to do it tubing and you know medicine balls etc many different ways to do that to train those body parts plyometrically that's basically all he's saying all right so when you're at those numbers based on his description you spend a much higher you may basically maintain in those areas and each year you're trying to get a greater percent of that strength tapped into faster within your sports skill. For general population, you know, these numbers obviously don't matter. There is no, oh, you know, you need to be this strong for gen pop. So you're focusing more so on making it fun, making it interactive and meeting their goals, which primarily going to be through dietary intervention and not necessarily exercise. Because exercise, obviously, is a means to an end. And then secondly, if nutrition never changed, you, you can only exercise so much before you have to start changing how many calories you're eating, manipulating that variable. But nonetheless, overemphasizing strength, and he talks, as what he mentioned, 1.2 to 1.5 body weight for uh, women, it becomes counterproductive trying to shoot more than that if you're not a power lifter or an Olympic weightlifter or a bodybuilder, potentially. Focus your time elsewhere. So let's move forward. Quote, the average approach to functional hypertrophy simply requires implementing a larger percent of core lifts at a lower load. So that's 75 to 85% of one rep max for four to five sets of five to eight repetitions. Hypertrophy is indeed a byproduct of heavy strength training and a higher graining and a higher gross training volume suffice to create a more appreciable anabolic response. This volume far exceeded the general recommendations for net training volume and strength training for sport 
And for this very same reason, such an aggressive approach is often used during the offseason. So he's just talking about if you were going to, not if you were, if the athlete needed a stronger stimulus for hypertrophy, and as we are discussed, is a natural byproduct of strength training, then you would just increase the overall training volume, so the sets, reps, and load to create a more appreciable anabolic response, if that makes sense. So you don't you wouldn't go crazy, you wouldn't go crazy like oh you do 10, you know, 10, 12 sets per per uh, muscle group. You wouldn't do something crazy like that. He's just saying you you would increase the overall volume, gross volume to try to get a little bit more out of that particular response to generate some extra hypertrophy if the athlete needs that. They need more strength, depending on the type of sport they play. But, but the point being is you still, you still have to determine the context of a novice, an intermediate, and an elite athlete. A novice doesn't need to train between 75 and 85%. They, they don't need to. So this is why you have to understand that this information is highly contextual to the athlete you're looking at, what level they're at, what do they need, and what am I looking at in 5, 10 years? Because you're just not obviously going to train a, a novice athlete who has to work on more of a motor learning component in order to maximize and learn how to effectively develop technique in relation to lifting weights in the squat, in the deadlift, in single joint exercises. How do you train that? You can't train that at 75 to 85% because that's not a good intensity upon which motor learning for exercise technique can be learned. I.e. why Michael Yeses and Joseph Johnson, and including myself, go with a higher amount of single joint exercises for beginners in the beginning, covering the entire body from ankle all the way up to the shoulder. At a lower load with a higher amount of repetitions per set, with one set at that. And you develop the body entirely and you develop that motor learning at each joint. It's the part-whole method. Train the parts, incorporate back into the whole. And this is just from a general, a general training standpoint, like the uh, general preparatory period. And then you do the same, same thing with the sports skill. If they're struggling with their knee drive to begin the swing phase, okay, we can train the knee drive with the knee drive exercise with active cords, and then we can incorporate it back into the technique. But there's certain ways you go about it. But again, we're that's getting off topic into specialized training and what type of system do you use and what's most optimal for the level of athlete. Because like again, 75, 85%, that's just not that's not what a beginner needs, not even intermediate. So at the end of the day, if the end result is speed, then how much strength do you need? Are you saying that, okay, if I have 
a 14 year old is my singular goal to get them to 1.8 to 2.0 of course not they're going to get there over time that that's the that's the point point is don't you know beat this particular adaptation in the whole okay they have to be at 1.8 to 2 go through the typical periodization model they will get stronger over time some will get stronger at a much quicker pace than others some it takes a little bit longer but at the end of the day based on the training calendar you can't even overemphasize that anyway because you're going to lose valuable time so it's just a natural byproduct of going through strength you know going through strength endurance and, and again we're talking about what type of adaptations and what type of physical capabilities do certain groups need and obviously if the number one influence is technique it's all we're trying to influence then what is the number one factor or the top three factors for the population you work with youth sports well they're not going to have a high amount of technique endurance being able to repeat let's say if they're sprinting being able to duplicate the stride length over the course of 100 meters if they were running 100 meters obviously a kid wouldn't run 100 meters but what i'm saying is they don't have the physiological energy so they don't have the energy system necessary the atp pcr system isn't functionally capable of sustaining that type of speed and that type of race for a, a kid so you do you, so do you see how that this matters the physiology of the individual at that point in time matters it's whether they're sex-based whether it's how old they are you know biologically based whether it's how many years of experience they have and then what you know body fat percent category they follow within and then how much body mass they have see all, all these things matter and determine what you should what's appropriate what's appropriate not what you should should not do but obviously appropriate determines that but let's move forward so he's just mentioning in this slide an aggressive approach is used during the off season if you did want to improve hypertrophy that's the only time you would have let's continue a different approach and a far less common one is training for sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. The gain in muscle size is much more pronounced, yet it does not necessarily correspond to improved muscle function. Muscle cross-sectional area increases because of greater intracellular water content, greater intramuscular glycogen stores, greater capillarization, angiogenesis, and larger mitochondria mass or mitochondrial biogenesis. The number of contractile elements acting in myosin increases as well, but to a lesser degree. Training intensity ranges between 65 to 75% of one RM with three to four sets of 10 to 12 repetitions. And this is the typical method that is used to elicit more of a sarcoplasmic response. You see this in the bodybuilding, bodybuilding rep ranges. You know, 10s, 10 to 12s, 6 to 8s. High volume. Or the amount of sets per muscle group and as he said this is the second approach to myofibular and if we go back myofibular being 75 to 85 percent four to five sets about eight repetitions targeting more of that contractile protein concentration versus 65 to 75 percent three to four sets 10 to 12 repetitions lower the rest time like i said this is just what he's outlining me personally, I don't necessarily focus on this. 
And I've already went over how I kind of look at it um, when I was on the previous slide based on the context of who you're working with. And do you actually ever need to target this, whether it's a small amount? And like I said, if you have reached their functional strength or the amount of strength they can have at, a, at that particular body weight, then you may throw in the myofibular protocol. Let's move forward. Quote, each set is brought to muscular failure. So he's talking about sarcoplasmic uh, hypertrophy, if you're targeting that. Loads between sets must be lowered in order to accommodate for the buildup of peripheral fatigue and to complete the necessary number of repetitions required. Rest between sets is incomplete in the range of 30 to 60, uh, 30 to 90 seconds. Time of detention averages between 50 and 70 seconds per set with eccentric muscle actions often longer than three seconds. Training for sarcoplasmic hypertrophy heavily involves the glycolytic system with the massive production of lactate and hydrogen ions. Muscle function is therefore heavily compromised and power output declines quite abruptly through each set. Overall volume tends to decrease quite rapidly due to the change in loads that is necessary to account for the buildup of peripheral fatigue. Hence a larger, hence a larger number of assistance exercises and overall greater volume is needed to induce an appreciable hypertrophic response. Hence what I said, 10 to 12 sets per muscle group. Because you cannot sustain the intensity, you need more overall sets to negate the drop in weight with each successive set with the decreased density or the decreased um, time because you're increasing the training density, if that makes sense. So you see how this is detrimental. You're sacrificing power you're sacrificing neuromuscular adaptation in chase of this structural component and so for your gen pop this is where you may spend a majority of your time especially if you're under time because i can only work out for 30 minutes all right this is what you do and if they want appreciable changes in muscle mass well this is where you're going to give it to them they're going to get bigger, quicker with this method than they will get stronger with the other method. The other method takes longer. I mean, they, you know, they get a, maybe a greater increase in calorie burn, which you should, you should never use weight training for burning calories. It's just, it's, just, it's minuscule. Anyway, let, let's continue. Although a greater percentage of lean body mass can represent an, an advantage in sport, an excessive increase in body weight can often be counterproductive. Excessive muscle development can increase moment arm at the level of some of the main joints in the human body, such as the glenohumeral joint and the coxofemoral joint, increasing the amount of force torque required to overcome inertia, meaning you have to produce more force to move the extra weight at the proximal end of these joints. So they're gonna move slower. So you're reducing power because you're moving them slower because they have an increase in mass at those particular joints. So increasing the moment arm. So the amount of force you have to produce in order to move it, get it moving. This will in turn decrease the speed at which the individual muscle can contract and prevent an athlete from expressing higher levels of power. So this is one element of what we're talking about biomechanically. All right, that excessive muscle development and the negative effects it can have, increasing moment arm. 
Similarly, hypertrophic muscles tend to present a greater angle of pination. A greater angle of pination tends to increase quite significantly the physiological cross-sectional area of a muscle and therefore the amount of force a muscle can generate. Nevertheless, a greater angle of pination also tends to increase the distance between proximal and distal insertion of a muscle along its line of pull, further decreasing the speed at which individual muscle fibers can contract and preventing an athlete from expressing high levels of power. So we talked about increasing moment arm, and now we're talking about increasing angle of pination. which affects the amount of force a muscle can generate. So the increase in the moment arm affects how quickly the muscle can contract to generate force to move the heavier, uh, the heavier mass or creating a higher amount of inertia to get the joint moving. And then the greater pination angle significantly affects the amount of force a muscle can generate. which increases the distance between the proximal and distal insertions of the muscle along its line of pull, which also decreases the speed at which the individual muscle can contract. So not only have we talked about more weight, putting more wear and tear in weight-bearing sports on weight-bearing joints, we're also now talking about it affecting, having effect on biomechanics, the speed at which the muscle can contract and the speed at which limbs can move and the amount of force the muscle can produce. So do you see how detrimental this can be to athletic development, sports performance, and all this, you know, blood, sweat, and tears we, you were supposedly leaving on the field in the weight room with what we're doing. Let's continue. Finally, if not supported by a similar increase in muscle strength, a greater muscle mass can potentially alter the power to weight ratio of an athlete heavily composing speed, power, and excuse me, heavily co compromising speed, power, and agility. The importance of lean body mass over sheer body weight has emerged since the early studies of muscle hypertrophy carried out by Dr. Hackenden. This is Hackenden again in 1989. He compared the difference in relative strength between strength training athletes, sprinters, and endurance athletes using lean body mass or a muscle cross-sectional area or overall body size as a reference. So we'll look at that study. Let me get a drink of water real quick. We're going, we're going in today. So the importance of lean body mass over body weight, we've already discussed that. Now, Hackenden compared the difference, the relative strength difference, as a function of muscle cross-sectional area, which is lean body mass, we talked about, that's going to represent lean body mass, or relative strength as a function of muscle girth overall body size because if you have let's say you take a measurement of two people's arm one person could have a 20 inch bicep 
and a majority of that weight could be subcutaneous fat. Another person could have a 20-inch arm, like Arnold, and it'd be primarily muscle, but they have the same amount of muscle girth. But if you look at the muscle cross-sectional area, obviously Arnold's is going to be significantly greater. So this is what we're getting to. The effect helps create the image in your mind. So the paper is Hakkinen and Keskinen, 1989. It's called Muscle Cross-Sectional Area and Voluntary Force Production Characteristics in Elite Strength and Endurance Trained Athletes and Sprinters. Quote, thigh girth takes into consideration both lean body mass and body fat. Therefore, max force or thigh girth represents in good approximation a measure of relative strength equivalent to max force or body weight. Similarly, muscle cross-sectional area represents in good approximation a measure of relative strength equivalent to max force or lean body mass. So I just want to make sure that's clear. Relative strength uh, excuse me. Oh, excuse me. Max force or thigh girth represents max force to body weight. So what is their strength in relation to their overall body weight? So that is max force, thigh girth. Second, muscle cross-sectional area is equivalent to relative strength or max force lean body mass. So thigh girth, max force, body weight, cross-sectional area, muscle cross-sectional area, max force, lean body mass. This relationship between lean body mass has shown to be more significant and more constant than the relationship between strength and body weight, accounting for over 60% of the variance in muscular strength between athletes. And this is intuitive. If you take fat mass out of it and you compare only athletes with lean body mass, equivalent lean body masses, and even male to female, we see a lot of the discrepancies or disparities uh, go out the window when you match people for lean body mass. Men and women right there, right there together. And uh, between athletes, not accounting for gender, they all have 150 pound, 50 pounds of lean body mass. They're going to not be statistically significant and the difference, excuse me, if you match 10 athletes, male, female, they all have 150 pounds of lean body mass, then their strength is going to be relatively the same across all individuals. The difference between strength athletes, power athletes, and endurance athletes in terms of muscular strength is not hard to predict based on the difference in means and methods of training between traditional, traditional resistance training and aerobic training. Yet, when strength training athletes and sprinters were compared, no significant difference in terms of relative strength was observed when strength was expressed as a function of lean body mass. So remember, they're looking at power lifters, sprinters, and endurance athletes. So, you know, like cross country runners. So when you account and express strength as a function of lean body mass, you don't see a difference between the sprinters or the power lifters. 
and they're training exclusively different. One is exclusively targeting explosive strength. One is targeting max strength. One is targeting strength endurance. This is an exceptional intuitive um, finding. And we're, and we're actually getting close to the end. Just bear with me. <laughs> so let me pull up this paper really quick so that we can see this is the last paper and I got a few more slides. And then we can get out of here. All right, so I have it up. It's called again, muscle cross-sectional area and voluntary force production characteristics in elite strength and endurance trained athletes and sprinters. So let's read this summary. And if you wanna see the full paper, that's why I'm announcing it and it's on the video. Seven male elite strength trained athletes from different weight categories, six elite sprinters and seven elite endurance trained athletes volunteered as subjects for examination of their muscle cross-sectional area, maximal voluntary isometric force, force time and relaxation time characteristics of the leg extensor muscles. I mean, look at that. They looked at cross-sectional area, max force, RFD, and relaxation time characteristics. The strength training group demonstrated significantly greater cross-sectional area, so powerlifters, and maximal absolute strength, strength than the sprinters. While the, we'll just call them cross-country runners, group demonstrated the smallest values, both in cross-sectional area and especially in maximal strength. Of course, because they're training specifically for endurance and also for elasticity. When the maximal forces were related to cross-sectional area of the muscles, the mean value of the strength training group of 60.8 newtons per centimeter remained slightly greater than that recorded of the sprinter group of 55 newtons per centimeter and significantly greater than the recorded in the endurance group of 49.3 newtons per centimeter, which like I said, that's pretty intuitive. The mean value of the sprinter group was also significantly greater than that of the strength endurance group or the cross country group. The isometric force time curves differed between the groups so that the times taken to produce the same absolute force were the shortest in the sprinter group, of course, and longest in the endurance group. Yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. With force expressed as a percentage of the maximum, the force time curve shows that the sprinter group demonstrated still shorter times to a given value, especially at the lower force levels than the other two groups. So when they express basically rate of force development as a function of cross-sectional area, sprinters still showed a higher, uh, or still showed shorter times. So they're reaching peak force much shorter than the other two groups, which is intuitive. They're, they're exclusively doing explosive training versus maximal versus strength endurance or elastic training. With regard to the differences in force production per cross-sectional area and the shape of the force time curves, the present findings may be explained by possible differences both in the rate and the amount of neural activation of the muscles and or the qualitative characteristics of the muscle tissue itself. The present findings characterize that, uh, characterize the very specific nature of high resistance strength sprint and endurance training stimuli over a very prolonged period of time because these were elite level competitors in each of those domains so it's very highly contextual and specific hence 
Powerlifting is its own sport. Endurance is its own sport. Sprinting is its own sport. So therefore, you need to develop science within the constraints of that sport and not pull from powerlifting. What is powerlifting doing to get powerlifting strong? Let's use that in baseball. Let's use that in football. That just wouldn't make sense. You're taking something that's specific to a sport and we can look at, you know, weightlifting and powerlifting and lifting weights as a hobby. But the fact of the matter is it's a sport. So you're taking principles from another sport and then applying it to your sport when the opposite should be happening. You should be experimenting and finding out what loads, what means and methods, what volume, what intensity to develop the physical capabilities we need to within our sport, not pulling from, oh, well, this is how soccer develops strength endurance. Let's use that for baseball. It doesn't make any sense to do it that way. So let's get back to the paper, uh, to the PowerPoint, because this is not about going off on a tangent. And when I mean a tangent, just getting off topic but more so highlighting what the majority of my PhD studies are, is being able to do that, to critically think and to develop unique, independent research, but also strategies within your sport, which we see this all the time, which could be esoteric or it could be too out of the box, too outward thinking, go against conventional wisdom, but there's too, I'm saying there's just too much of that, that the majority of the sport literature in performance is based upon things that were developed for other sports and then just say, hey, well, if it works there, let's just use that. So there's really no scientific evidence to justify starting with three by 10, other than it was used and created as a way to rehab military personnel post-war. So it was developed out of a physical therapy philosophy. So this is what I mean. The very principles that govern how we train have been developed from other industries, physical therapy, powerlifting, weightlifting, And other, like I said, other areas. So you, you have to be able to filter between what's coming from a physical therapy perspective, what's coming from a different perspective, and then you can see, oh, okay, I see why this is structured this way. Well, no, nah, this is not the best thing for my athletes. FMS and you know, all these things that should be predictive, but are not predictive of athletic success or injuries, other than like previous injury history and then other things like the conditioning of the athlete for the demands and the forces they have to withstand in their sports. But let's continue. 
going back to Squalante on the last couple of slides, cross-sectional studies have revealed how the average body composition for strength and power athletes has quite drastically changed over the course of the last 20 years, with male and female athletes that are overall lighter and with a far greater percentage of lean body mass. This change reflects a different approach in strength training for sports that prioritize muscle function over muscle size. The average defensive lineman in American football, for instance, decreased significantly over the last decade from well over 300 pounds to less than 270 pounds. Similarly, body composition of professional rugby players has changed over the last decade from an average of 18% with peaks of 22% to an average of 12% body fat with very few athletes above 16% body fat. Now, we're not accounting for performance enhancing drugs, and I'll bring up a study in another uh, podcast. It's, it's actually crazy. I'm not, I'm not even going to mention it here. It's, it's just crazy. You know, you would think, and we all know this, I, I, intuitively, I think we all kind of know this, um, that again, it's just not, the playing field is obviously not equal. And we're not going to sit here and act like it is. But I'll bring this up in a whole nother podcast. Um, and it's crazy. It's, it's real crazy. But I don't want to release nothing here until I collect the whole body of evidence and we release it on the podcast. But continuing. So we have seen trends in overall body weight decreasing and lean body mass increasing. And yes, we can say it's due to, you know, due to technological, technological advances, not due to training sophistication, because I mean, there ain't nothing different from what the Russians were doing in the 60s to what's being done now. And vice versa. We do have like katsu and stuff like that. It's actually a, a, a much more friendly if you're looking for strictly sarcoplasmic uh, hypertrophy, I mean, you don't have to put as much wear and tear on the body to get it with cat soup. But let's continue. It is worth noting how functional hypertrophy very heavily explains the difference in adaptation to heavy strength training between male and female athletes. A plethora of studies have revealed how the difference in muscle function expressed as absolute strength and or power between man and woman ranges between 20% and 30% with men being on average stronger and more powerful than women of similar body weight. The difference, however, tends to disappear when muscle function is expressed in relation to lean body mass. Relative strength and power between male and female athletes of similar and experience display only minimal differences that can be explained as a different degree of sheer muscular development. Greater testosterone concentration makes it possible for men to adapt to resistance training to a far greater extent than women care than women can, carrying on a large, a larger and more significant change in lean body mass. The physiological, the physiological explains the gap in the levels of strength and power between male and female athletes, which just goes to the wild like for men, it was 1.8 to 2, his recommendation. And then for women, it was 1.2 to 1.5, uh, just acknowledging those differences. But when we make uh, strength, relative strength as a function of lean body mass, they disappear for men and women. And so what I wanted to show here at the end of the, the presentation, so what I wanted to show here was I showed, I'm showing baseball athletes and the changes in body weight from their college, I'll say their college or their amateur competitive days to the professional days. So this is Shane Bieber, your Cy Young winner from 2020 season in the American League. At Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara, 
He was 6'3", 195 pounds, 2015. It has on, for the Indians, it has his weight as 6'3", 200 pounds. So we're talking about over seven years, six years, six, seven years. He put on about five pounds. That's example one. It's just empirical anecdotal evidence. So this was, and, and what I did was I pulled the top 10 Cy Young finalists in the American League, and I just tried to find what these weights were. And I tried to look at some position players as well, like Freitas Tavis Jr., then Francisco Lador. I just wanted to make a small point here. So this is Kenta Mieta. I think is how you say his name. I may be saying it completely wrong. So when he played in the, I believe it's the Japanese league, yes, the, the Japan Professional League, he was six foot, 161 pounds. 2010, it now has him listed with the Twins at 6'1", 185 pounds. So over 11 years, he put on about 24 pounds over 11 years, which is about, what, two pounds a year, roughly speaking? He's not 240, but... I'm not proving the point to say that, oh, overemphasizing bulking as the sole means of, well, you're not performing good because you're not training hard enough and you're not big enough. You should eat more. And because, you, you know, you're, you should eat more means you need to get bigger because then you're going to be stronger and more powerful. That, that's what I'm getting to. We have Gary Cole. So Gary Cole coming out of high school, 2007, 2008 was listed at 190 pounds. He was 17 years of age. Now with the Yankees, he's listed at 6'4", 220. So he put on 30 pounds and we're talking about 13 years, 30 pounds, 13 years. So at 10, years that's three pounds so that's a little over that's a little less than you know two and a half pounds per year over 13 years which is about right in line with that olympic weightlifting study of about two pounds you know 2.6 pounds actually that was 2.6 kilograms i'll take that back um so it's actually a little bit more so that's gary cole dallas keichel it has him listed, and I couldn't find what he was when he was drafted at Arkansas. I, I couldn't find anything. But basically, he was 205 pounds as of this article in 2018, and he bulked that year coming into spring training. From 2017, he bulked that offseason to come into spring training 2018 from 205 pounds to 220 pounds is what it said. So he gained 15 pounds in one offseason. Wink, wink. Hint, hint, wink, wink. He gained 15 pounds in one offseason. Wink, wink. Anyway, <laughs> I then wanted to show some of his other weights. Uh, you got some thrown around that says he's currently with the White Sox, potentially, at 205 pounds. So he went into a contract year. He gained 15 pounds going into a contract year. Now he's back to 205, 210, 210-ish. 
So gaining 15 pounds over an offseason and then losing 15 pounds over an offseason, going into a contract here, wink, wink. But I just wanted to highlight this. Then I wanted to do two position players since they have to carry this weight around with them, obviously, more since they're position players. Francisco Lindor, shortstop. In 2011, he was 170, 5'11", 170. He's currently listed at 5'11", 190. So over 10 years, he gained about 20 pounds. See, see the see, see you see here. Ten years, twenty pounds, about two pounds a year. We're seeing the same trend even with the pitchers. Tadis Jr. When he came out of the Dominican Republic, he was 6'1, 175. Depending on how accurate this is. He's now 217. So over six, seven years, he's put on. I mean, he's almost put on 40 pounds like that. You know, that, that's considerable. Now, consider that he's coming from the Dominican public. He may not have been weight training at all. And so if we saw a 20% increase in body weight, let's say in that one study, um, they're looking at different experience lifters and increasing 20% uh, body weight just off, you know, 21 weeks of training, then, you know, th this could be potentially realistic you know realistic 40 pounds over you know six seven years especially in the beginning because you know 20 percent of what 175 is like 15 pounds so you know he goes from 175 to you know 190 like that you know in less than a year you know maybe half a year six months and if he's a a, a fast responder or he gets a greater thing he may you know he may gain more weight who knows um but Again, here in this case, over a six-year period, you know, 40 pounds. And it also doesn't show, like, the year-to-year -year variance. So did, like, Heiko, he gained 15 pounds in one season, and then the rest, it was the same. It was constant. Same here. Uh, well, how much weight did he gain his first year, and then was it constant after that? Or did you see little uh, peaks and valleys all over the place? Um, but that's the end of the presentation. I really appreciate you're hanging out. And if you want to sign up for the email list, one more time, excuse me, go to athleticholisticsystems.com. That's athletic with an H, holistic systems, and that's holistic with an H, dot com. You click the top tab in the right. You press the Sports Performance Professional Podcast. Go down to the bottom, and in your first, your last name, your email address, press the send button, and you'll get a confirmation saying you have signed up for our podcast, newsletter list, and updates. And you can also follow us on rss.com or listen to us on Spotify. I really appreciate you being with us today. It was a long one. Hey, you hung in there. See you next time.